This episode of The Ship Show is sponsored by PagerDuty. PagerDuty decreases alerting noise for operations and developers and ensures the right engineers are alerted at the right time. PagerDuty helps you identify common problems, allowing you to make system improvements proactively so you don't have to be woken up at 2 a.m., something nobody likes. Ship Show listeners can sign up for a free 14-day trial at www.pagerduty.com slash theshipshow. To ship, of course. It's time again for DevOps, Build Engineering, Release Management, and everything in between. It's the Ship Show. I'm your host, Paul Reed, SilverBuildEng on Twitter, and at SilverBuildEngineer.com, where I blogged something recently, so go check that out. Who is with me here on this fine, crisp November evening? Uh, this is Seth, uh, at CheesePlus on Twitter. This is EJ, Mella on Twitter. And this is Yusuf Santos on Twitter. How have you been, uh, gentlemen? Seth and EJ, it's been a while. Yeah, drying out after a, almost a week in Vegas. <laughs> I didn't know it rained in Vegas. <laughs> Depends on where you are. It rains all the time in Vegas. Yeah, seriously. I was the only person I knew not at reInvent, and I couldn't have been happier. <laughs> and how have you been, Yusuf? Well, pretty good. Busy. Just, you know, keeping busy. Um, yeah. We shouldn't shrug this off. Like I have a candidate starting probably in the next couple of weeks in Belfast on my team that uh, was phenomenal and we found through this podcast. Really? Absolutely. So you're still looking? Though. We are still looking, but looking in the Cambridge office. Oh, cool. All right, well, uh, put a link to the show notes for the uh, the job description and all of that kind of fun stuff if you would like to work with EJ doing DevOpsy and ship showy things. But for episode, what is this, 52? Episode 52, we are going to be talking about the fun, wonderful world of microservices and the complications and wonder that is microservices. But first up, as we always do, we are doing the news and the views. So obviously reInvent, huge deal. EJ and, well, Pete was there too, but he's not with us this evening. Uh, he's no longer with us. He actually he said he was going to be here, but then he ended up having a, a work thing to tackle. And it was funny because ThreatStack was at reInvent and, and was up on stage too. I, I, I saw a lot of fun tweets about the work that Pete's working on. But yes, lots of reInvent stuff. Tell us about them. Yeah, all of was, them. Uh, I can't tell you about all of them. I just don't all have the reInvent. I don't have the memory capacity to regurgitate much of this. But um, yeah, it was pretty cool the first day of announcements. We were sort of like, yeah, okay, shouldn't have sat through this keynote. Could have probably had a couple hours worth of sleep more. It was the second day where they started talking about the Elastic Container Service. They started talking about... The deploy service, internally, uh, Amazon has always called it Apollo, and this is sort of some sort of weird cousin of Apollo. I probably It's probably not anywhere close to what they had internally, uh, but the running joke was that uh, if you ask anyone that's quit Amazon, Apollo is what they miss the most about the Amazon environment, uh, being able to deploy code and um, rolling pushes. And, so what, and, it, what is the deploy service? It helps them deploy their code? Is that what, it, what we're talking about? Kind of, yeah. Let's... There's one other one where everyone was like super excited for it. Oh, Aurora. There, that's it. Oh, the my the MySQL stuff. Yeah. The RDMs um, compatible MySQL or MySQL compatible RDMs yeah. stuff. Yeah. So that. And is then another... and then there was Lambda too. Yeah, yeah. So Lambda and again, like all my front end devs that were there were like, yes. And I'm pretty convinced now, especially with the advent of Lambda, that Amazon views that. The only thing that will be left after nuclear winter are going to be cockroaches and JavaScript developers. But I, it, it's, it all seems pretty impressive. And, like, the first day that we started seeing all these things come out, I was like, oh, my God, I just want to blow off all the events and, like, go throw away my bakery and redo it all. And then, you know, I just felt like a kid on Christmas. I just opened up all these toys. I'm not sure which one I want to play with first. Well, then the next day... I started thinking about it. I started attending sessions and asking questions, and then I realized, like, yeah, this this bicycle doesn't have a front wheel, and there's <laughs> no brakes. And then, you know, I get back to Massachusetts, and we really start poking at things. I'm like, hey, this wasn't a bicycle at all. It's a 
pack of underwear. It's like this was not what we thought it was going to be. There's some amazing stuff in there, don't get me wrong. But um, well, So let's walk through them real quick. So there's the container service. Uh, yeah, so let's talk about even the Elastic Container Service. So right yeah. now, you can do a lot of this stuff right now with uh, outside of Amazon using something like Mesos. HubSpot did a really amazing presentation on using containers and doing a kajillion deploys a second kind of thing. Um, but the Elastic Container Service, you know, one of the beauties of working in Amazon world is you get things like auto-scaling if you've done your services properly. Um, you get security groups. You get all these, like, little nice-to-haves that just make working there in that environment a pleasure. Um, with the Elastic Container Service, what you wind up doing is you spin up either an Amazon Linux instance or I think CentOS is the other one that they offer. Effectively, you spin up this cluster VC2 instance, and there's a there's like a Docker agent on there that clusters them together for you. It's not supported, and like Ubuntu hasn't released AMIs that have this thing. They haven't even open sourced the agent, so you can build it in yourself manually. But once you have that cluster VC2 instance up, then you can deploy your containers to them. And so the typical like the Netflix model is there's a, like a one per right, so one security group for one service, that kind of thing. And with the Elastic Container Service. There's none of that. So you have this group of EC2 instances, but you have multiple services deployed into each one of them. Um, mm. They don't offer mm. the granularity that you'd, you'd really want. Um, so it's going to change people's deployment models, and I think over time, and they made reference to it during the announcement, during the keynote, that um, they're going to you know, add more and more of the stuff in, but I'm not sure how a security group around or in front of EC2 instances would work if those EC2 instances are running multiple services and you want different ingress and egress points on those containers, right? So anyway, yeah. Elastic Container Service. Um, so fun. Looks like there's a great deal of promise there. There was also Aurora that they announced. And we're thinking that, so I'm not sure if anyone's run, I haven't thought about Oracle in probably a decade, but if you're running MySQL or Postgres, I think the pattern at some point is people start to shard based on orgs or clients that are actually using their service. I'm not an architect, don't quote me on that, but for the performance and the value, it looks like Aurora could kick that can down the road for you for a while. Um, one of the sort of nifty things about Aurora, too, is not only is it sort of like super duper fast and really easy to scale, but they also offer like an import-export from Aurora to MySQL and back if you wanted to. So it gives you the opportunity to sort of kick the tires without making any sort of giant commitments and um, tooling, as long as you're using MySQL. There's no, like, Postgres to Aurora and back. That would just be a magic wand, I think. All right, and then uh, there was the deployment stuff. Apollo. Yeah, yeah, I mean... There, there's like the deploy service that they demoed, and at first I was really in, thrilled thinking like, oh my god, look how you can do these rolling pushes. And one of the things that, and maybe we're not using Asgard to its fullest right now, um, but we use Asgard to like push out instances of our AMIs that we bake. And occasionally we'll do rolling pushes when something's been vetted. And that, what that means is, like, if you have an auto-scaling group of 10 instances of a given service, we'll just go through and either one by one or... 10 at a time, or all of them, it's up to you, replace them. But for us, uh, with Asgard, it's like the second there's been a problem, um, say the actual service somehow passed QA muster, but over the course of two hours somehow has a memory leak and just starts terminating or something like, or maybe even a shorter term thing. But e either way, it's like Asgard will just roll out poop to your auto-scaling group, and uh, there isn't like a great validate phase. And please, everyone correct me if I'm wrong. I would love to know if there is. But for their deploy service, it made it very clear that they had some baked-in validate service to prove that what has just been pushed is legitimate. And then we start digging into it. And again, when this was announced, it was announced around, you know, we know people are still FTPing their code to instances. And I'm like, you lost me at FTP. Um, <laughs> but it, it, does, it does seem like this doesn't quite have some of the features that we get with Asgard with some intelligence and some of the tooling, but this would definitely be a great tool if somebody's got, like, a PHP app or a Ruby on Rails thing where there isn't necessarily a compile time step, but, you know, you just, like, pull down from wherever, buy a tag, and you're good to go. They also announced a source control system. Did anyone see this? Am I the only one? Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, and I don't know if they're trying to fire a shot across. Nobody's looked at this. Like, I oh I no, they, they fired. They've basically fired shots at everybody. Yeah, like, like this is that like, GitHub. Who? Oh yeah, yeah. They fired. They fired shots at GitHub. I mean, that was for the for the source control. They fired shots at GitHub. They fired shots at Docker. My favorite is that they actually figured out how to monetize Docker before Docker did. Which <laughs> is brilliant. They're like, oh, by the way, we just ate your lunch. 
Uh, I don't know. The, the container service costs nothing. Right, right. But, your but EC2 you're, instance uh, right. You're still using EC2. They lock you. That's how they get you. Like they, they're they're making money off of a technology and a platform that Docker has still has yet to make any actual real money off of, other yeah. than investment. So all again to sort of like confirm or cement Seth's point here is like AWS. I think what makes them awesome is they just make it easy. Like, they do the API first, and they worry about everything else after the fact, right? So we'll see this evolve. And again, we saw stuff from last year's re-event, like Kinesis, and people were like, yeah, I guess. And then we saw a lot of presentations this past reInvent. I think it was, like, DataZoo. I forget. I think it was DataZoo. It could have been them or Nike. I forget which. But one of the presentations I attended, they were talking about getting a million log events per second processed and uh, managed via Kinesis. A million log events per second. That is just... It was $6,500 a month, too. That was the running cost to do this. Quick question. It sounds a lot like Microsoft back in the day, where, you know, they... they, It was sort of like, we'll either buy you or we will then directly compete with you. I mean, with a lot of these services that, you know, we're talking about Docker or some of these things, am I the only one that is pattern matching against that? Or? No, it's, I mean, that's, I mean that's, that's exactly what I saw sitting, sitting on the outside, not actually being terribly invested. I mean, I do, I do day-to-day occasionally work with AWS stuff and things like that, but it seemed like they're just like, oh, by the way, we're going to lock in everyone into, not lock everyone into our cloud. We're going to encourage everyone to stay in our beautiful cloud Right, eating everyone else's lunches, um, right. which they can totally do because they're Amazon. Um, right. I mean, well, it reminds me. It reminds me a lot. Remember how Microsoft used to do the you know the operating systems were cheap uh, for large organizations, and mm-hmm. Office was cheap. You know, to lock them into. I mean, that was the not cheap, but cheaper. I mean, that was the whole like lock yeah. them into that and make that easy, and then make the price more expensive for future versions and stuff. It sounds like it's that. Like- They've got a great value proposition, and they just keep making. And like as EJ said, they keep making it better. It's really, it's for me. It's interesting to watch. Like uh, what I, from what I heard from other folks that are there, they were just like abandoned booths, like of companies that kind of came there to present and didn't know what Amazon was, you know, going to show off. And then kind of when Amazon like released some services, it's like, oh great, our entire business model gone. Like <laughs> you know, because because you can't compete with Amazon. They are, you know. Right. They'll continue to innovate, and they'll continue to make it cheaper. Yeah. yeah. Until they don't, because we've seen them do this with books. But it's interesting. Um, we'll obviously have to keep an eye on that and especially see how people are using it. Uh, in the next year, There, I'm sure there will be some interesting presentations of what people have done in the last year using the stuff that was announced. Speaking of Microsoft, actually, there was some interesting news that Microsoft will be uh, open sourcing.net. Uh, Yusuf, you pointed us at this. Yeah, yeah, definitely some some very um, uh, interesting. I wouldn't really call it shocking, but interesting news. Uh, it sounds like what their .NET five is being made open source, ASP.NET, and it's also um, they're porting it to Linux and OS ten, which I find rather odd. I don't know why anybody would want to. Well, maybe maybe not ASP.NET, but <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know why anybody would want to port ASP.NET to OS ten. But anyhow. Um, so yeah, definitely kind of a big move from uh, from Microsoft. But we've already seen them kind of slowly kind of uh, move into the open source space with uh, letting you run Linux and other open source tools on Azure. Yeah, and so well, I like how they're using GitHub for the the source code. Yeah, well. and I'm excited. I'm excited because I think that there's you know um, if you, if you work in the enterprise space, the whole I'm thinking before Sun got bought out by uh, uh, Oracle, open sourcing um, Java and you know that whole thing. I, I think that Microsoft is heading towards a very interesting direction. So yeah, yeah. Um, it just, yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting, and they they tend to do this with stuff, but I feel like it's very late in the game for or like for for at least .NET and their their tech stack to be like, hey, look, it's open source. It's like, oh man. Everyone stopped using it because nobody cared. I was going to ask, like, is there anyone yeah. still doing .NET well, things? So, that, so that's the thing. So, so the exciting thing that I think and that excites me particularly is that Mono, you know, the open source .NET implementation, has been made a first-class citizen in a number of the gaming frameworks, so like Unity, Unreal Engine 4. So having this be open source actually strengthens a lot of really cool gaming projects. Uh, so while I'm not myself the biggest .NET fan, 
Um, a lot of folks I know who are, you know, making, I, I would say indie games, but we're talking like games of all shapes and sizes from little tiny indie title to AAA title can now leverage .NET and actually have, you know, it's open source, so it's going to encourage more people to use it. So I'm kind of, I, that's why I, I think it's, it's, a, it can, it's a little bit exciting. I think from a market perspective, it's not as exciting, but some cool things will, I think, flow out of it and, you know, people writing C-sharp and F-sharp or whatever. Yeah, um, no, and I, cool. I know... I know some people that still use it uh, largely to provide actually web services and stuff. The one part that is interesting is they didn't open source, which I didn't expect them to, which to your point, Seth and EJ, it's like, you know, this is the this is the thing people care about and they didn't open source it, which is like the client side stuff. So if I wanted to write like a .NET app and have that have be a really good experience and have a community around improving that so you can run it on Windows or, God forbid, have a Windows app, on Linux, a Windows-looking app on Linux, like you can't do that, and they will never, it looks like, let you do that, and that is sort of the problem. They've open-sourced a lot of this stuff, but it's missing that part, and it probably always will. Yeah, they, they, I mean, they have, they've always had some, they have, they've had a strange history with their different initiatives, so yeah. I'm just, I'm curious to see where this goes. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's, it's a good move. It's just kind of, when Microsoft does something like that, I'm always a little bit confused, because I'm not sure, there's, there's that, like, big why. yeah. Were you just bored and thought maybe we would do this, or was, was it a last, you know, gasp at air for some technology? That right. You to I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not entirely clear of the motivations, but you know, good on them for open sourcing it. Like, bravo! I just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see if anything comes of it, or if it just kind of falls flat, um, like yeah. some of their other, you know, some of the other initiatives that they've actually pushed. Yeah, well, we, I'd be interested, I mean, to EJ's point, I'd be interested to know if anybody uh, is uh, really uh, use, you know, what they're using it for, if it is just web services, and, and how the, this announcement would uh, would affect them. That'd be interesting to hear. Uh, let us know, uh, Ship Show Podcast on Twitter. Last up tonight, we have something again, uh, Yusuf brought to us an article called Sometimes Kill-9 Isn't Enough. And we hear a lot about Chaos Monkey and tools like it, but uh, sometimes that doesn't give us the data we need. Yusuf. Yeah, pretty interesting article, I think. kind of talks about um, some various techniques to inject uh, sort of uncertainty or chaos into your, your application tier. So the article is kind of digging into, you know, different ways of doing that, like uh, setting up some things with, uh, with IP tables to draw packets every you know, like 10% of packets or 0.1% of packets. Right. I actually remember you could do this with one of the versions of VMware. You could actually, like, simulate with the network interface. You could simulate, like, a modem speed to try things. That's not as useful these <sighs> days, I don't think, but oh, it is. you could I mean, do that. It's still, it still can be. Um, so this is something that I, I found particularly interesting um, because... So when I was at Basho, we, were, we did a lot of Kill-9 testing. You know, because we're a big distributed database, so you should be able to just do crazy stuff. And it was I like this article, even though it's it's stuff that I've seen a little bit before, but it's the idea that Chaos Monkey and some of the other services, like, they don't go far enough because they're like, we're just killing things. Right. Killing things is, is so it makes the... You need to injure even, them heavily. Yeah, you you got to make it hop on one leg for right. a couple hours. And that's, and that's what I think is... Severe blood that. loss. Right, right. And so they used, the, I think the term they used is, uh, so pressure or pressure tolerant versus fault tolerant. And I know we did some of this uh, with React specifically, trying to like simulating weird replication times between two data centers, or you know, simulating a flaky WAN link, for example. Um, yeah. Not not a broken WAN link, because that's easy. But you know, something that's like yeah, 10% of your packets go through, or like asymmetric bandwidth, little things like that that you're not going to think to test, and then just kind of throw like a I like the there's a probability field in the IP tables, and you just kind of say, hey, rando value, and just kind of like. <laughs> See what happens and gather metrics, um, and they. I mean, it's the not a Schrodinger's cat of network, right? <laughs> oh, um, which is most networks, to to be yeah, fair. That's um, true. Yeah. So. Uh, certainly. Right. So I, I think it was. It wasn't a really long article, but it does make a very. It makes a very good point. I think it's a point that's been made several times before. It, it only gives the you know a few of the IP tables and IPFW examples, but it makes it makes that kind of good. Like, don't just think about. Can the services fail, like EJ said? What happens when they're like, you know, hopping around on one leg? Because that's that's actually going to be a lot weirder to troubleshoot. And if you already know what the behavior states are and the failure conditions are, or I guess 
maybe not not quite failure conditions, then it makes it a hell of a lot easier to troubleshoot your service. Yeah, the article kind of reminds me of this software testing class that I took in grad, uh, grad school, and uh, one of the things that I remember the professor saying was that there's a distinction between services or software that fails and services or services and software that operates in a degraded state. And I think this article kind of highlights a little bit of that. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting to see people, or at least uh, whoever wrote this uh, particular blog post, uh, sort of touch on that. It's kind um, of bending versus breaking concept. Sure, sure, yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, we'd be interested. Uh, do you test your software to see if it bends and how brittle it is? Uh, that's another thing you should let us know on Chipshow Podcast. Next up, we're going to be talking microservices here on Chipshow. <laughs> All right, welcome back to the Ship Show. So tonight, microservices and the wondrous and perilous world of microservices. Uh, this was a topic, actually, that Yusuf wanted to bring up and, and talk a little bit about, just because we hear a lot about it, and we actually hadn't done a talk on microservices. And I know that's the world a lot of us work in. So for those that don't know, in case uh, some of us don't work in microservice land, let's start there. EJ, uh, I know you have done a lot of work getting microservices deployed and stuff. We've actually talked about it briefly in the past. So let's start with, yeah, when we say microservice or microservices, what are we actually talking about here? Yeah, I think having like a single purpose in my mind is what defines a microservice. So you think of a, and I'm not sure if I can describe this as a monolith right now, but you do have your monolithic app and it, you don't have anything talking outside of this you know, set of war files or maybe it's a singular deployment within some giant war file, but start breaking that apart where if, say, you were tracking org IDs, maybe you would have an org service and then maybe if you had users that used your system, um, you would have a user service that tracks password changes, credential updates, this kind of thing. So that, in my mind, is typically the definition of a microservice where it's completely standalone, has its own backend. You're communicating via some API, not directly to its data store, to retrieve data from that, that microservice. And I think you can think of a microservices on, on Linux and Unix-based operating systems. You've got individual commands that are well-defined. They do, you know, sort of singular things, and then, you, you know, you use things like pipes to connect them up together. So that's kind of how I look at uh, microservices, or at least what I think microservices, the concept of microservices was kind of built on. So it's interesting, right, that you, you t I mean, you're talking about the Unix do one thing and do it well sort of mantra or ethos. It's interesting to note that there's like monolithic versus microkernel debate back in the, you know, the Torvalds Tenenbaum debates back in the day where it, was, it seems almost a, a similar discussion at the operating system level when they were talking about using message passing in different parts of a, a microkernel. Is that a valid kind of analogy or, or connection to make? I think it is. I mean, I think the, the, the comparison here is, like EJ mentioned, um, a monolithic application is going to have, you know, kind of everything contained or encapsulated within itself. And then when you've got microservices, you're going to have to have some sort of a, um, not necessarily a bus, but some either um, a common communication protocol to transfer data back and forth um, to, or, you know, some sort of a message bus to put and produce and uh, consume data off of. So it's kind of, it's funny you mentioned the Torvald-Tenenbaum debate. Is I see it as we've kind of come full circle in, in some ways. I mean, so, some of, some, one pattern is the, the message bus, and we definitely take advantage of that where I work. But another way is like service discovery using like Zookeeper or Eureka or something, and then just the services talk to each other direct, right? Yeah, well, so walk us through a little bit of that. I mean, in the service discovery, I mean, how do they, how does the API discover what other kind of, points are available, is that a way to sort of handle graceful fallback, or is that what that's for, or is it, is it trying to fall forward, not fall forward, but discover forward and discover, like, new capabilities? How, how's that play itself out when you're architecting? Yeah, I don't know. I could, probably can't answer the architecting point. Again, like, typically I build the conveyor belt, folks, so don't quote me or treat anything I say as gospel here, but again, so we don't we don't use Eureka. We use our own homegrown thing called Conqueso, but typically, so... One of our services we have is the statistics service, and it has its own RDS backend to it, and uh, our main application, uh, when it needs to draw up some uh, statistical analysis, 
uh, we use Concaso to say, hey, Concaso, tell me about all the uh, statistics services that you know about, and it will retrieve an endpoint and talk to that endpoint from there. Uh, at the same time, like we manage uh, whether a node is going down, has dropped out of service, time it out, and there's also a ton of logic built into the client-side library to make sure that we're retrying and get the second IP or third IP or try all of them at once, depending on what you're trying to do. So that's interesting. Is, is that a way to sort of do configurable API endpoints where you sort of discover what the, what the endpoint is and there's like a stand-in or a proxy for it, if that makes sense? I mean, it's something you need to stand in or proxy is that these these services, especially if you have a, some kind of service discovery, the idea is that you don't need to have, you, you get away from things like hard coding, like, all right, everybody, you point at the database server. It's the database server advertises itself because it's got, I don't know, if you want to use chef terms, like a role or something on it that says, hey, I am a database server, and so when these services are discovering, they're like, hey... I'm going to point at one of these database servers. No, well, hang on. Like, I want some clarification here. Like, typically, you wouldn't expose the database service server. You'd expose the service that's sitting in front of it, right? So sure. behind, behind the scenes, you can change your schema all you want as long as the uh, API is not changing. Right, um, but, but, the, but a service still needs at some point to talk to... One of the services still needs to talk to the database service. Correct. Yeah, yeah, okay. So I'm just you, saying, you, like... You service discovery for, for that. That's what I was getting. Yeah. So the, the analogy I was thinking of as somebody who does like a lot of sort of native app development was like localization where you, in the code, you put, like if there's an error message, you don't put the English language for it, you know, string for it. You say, this is the error string and it references a file and so then somebody comes along and they'll translate all, you know, the entire app into German and the entire app into French or whatever. Is it sort of that sort of kind of thing where you might say as a part of your application you would say I need to get user information so I will query the service discovery thing to say I need the thing that gets me user information and it would provide like a URL that I can then use. Well, it could. Uh, and there I configure it. Is that, is, is that kind of a... Eh, it, it could. I mean, it's, it's usually just like, you know, basically setting like the, you know, it's a way to get away from like setting static IPs for things or setting static host names. Ah, gotcha. Um, so, so you can make, you can dynamically, you can deploy these things and not have to worry about so, like, say if you want to do, like, some kind of, like, coordinated, so there, there, I guess you could think of, like, sc different schools of thought. Like, I could deploy a big application and have, like, all my stuff config managed and just have it point to the IPs. Like, just say, here's a file that says the IPs of things I care about. Or I could just issue that entirely and not actually have any kind of manual tracking. And then everything has got a kind of a particular role. And when the service discovery agent is going around, it's like, hey, I see a box that performs this service. I see a box that performs this service. And if you need those in your application, you can then use your config management to tie into those service discovery things. And just so you don't have to ever think about when you, you're pushing stuff out there. I mean, you need to make sure you have database boxes. You need to make sure you have web app boxes. You need to make sure you have API service boxes. But you shouldn't have to think about how they connect to each other. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. By the way... Git text is the thing I was thinking of. But in other words, it's it's application level indirection so that you don't have to hard code those things and then play DNS tricks to get it to work. You right. can sort of ask. Right. I mean, you can still, I mean, there's always the classic, like, point everything at a load balancer, put everything behind the load, you <laughs> right. know, and then, like, you have the, and don't get me wrong, man, that works great still. Like, it's like DNS is super great at certain things, and one of those is just, like, I'm going to point it at a name. But when you have, like, a billion Amazon instances it's a lot easier to just say, hey, everybody discover everyone. And that's why some of these service discovery projects that you, uh, so Zookeeper being probably the 800-pound gorilla in the room, there's, there's Zookeeper, but then there's also stuff like Console, Etcd, and that's why you're seeing these, these services become a lot, they're getting a lot more airtime um, because right. people are kind of moving away from, I mean, you can still use them with your existing config management system. It's just, hey, I need to make sure that, or for example, like with Zookeeper, if you need locking. So you need to make sure that only, there can only be one server uh, for something or that you can, if somebody's got like a lease or something, that only one service can have it and they use, you know, fancy distributed system quorums and things like that, which I could talk about for days, but I won't. I think they're super neat and uh, and everyone should use them, but they're, they're definitely something you get at scale, whereas if you're just, you know, if you've got three servers, like, you're probably safe to just point the web app at the DB and point the API at the, at the web app. It's, and, it's yeah. forward. Yeah, I just want to make one, like, slight clarification. What I've seen, and maybe it's different with some other tooling, but usually it's, like, the pread service starts up and publishes to the central authority. Like, hey, I am a this kind of thing. 
And then when the EJ service is looking for a P-read, I talk to the central management thing and say, hey, where's this P-read thing? Give me a list of them, right? I think the other thing, too, is like when you start talking about Amazon a few years ago, there was no VPC. And so anything you put behind a load balancer, like an ELB, is public domain. And so people are standing up HA proxy, and then some people are like, we don't, we don't really need that. We just want this service to talk to this thing. And uh, we'll just, we, we want them to find each other, and that's why something like, I think, Eureka came about. Mm. Um, okay. So we've talked a little bit about, about what microservices are and how they kind of provide and a little bit of discovery stuff. But, of course, you know, we're talking about release engineering, DevOps-type stuff. So I wanted to talk, like, it sounds like they're great way to make application architecture, but... Uh, you take a little bit of cost on the deployment side. Is that? It's. I mean, I feel. I feel like it's. It's like the whole like when you're when you're going to buy into. I'm going to say the word DevOps. When you're going to buy into that, <laughs> it was like a concept. It's. Do you want to do like so for for a lot of enterprises, they're looking at microservices now. They're like, oh, shiny microservices, you know, and they're chasing that kind of you know unicorn as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a lot of places that have been doing microservices for ages and totally get that thought model. And so it's not, I mean, it's not as, it's not as crazy as it seems. I mean, if you look at like how Google does stuff, it's also, it's also, I think a factor of scale where it becomes really important to kind of embrace microservices. Mm-hmm. Um, or for like when Google like runs, like servers, you, you can't do it any other way. Right. And Google doesn't have servers that do certain things. They have big, big fleets and farms, and each box takes a work unit and works on a as many work units as you can fit into the box, and it doesn't even care what the work units are. It's they're just it's compute. It's compute. And it's storage, doing right. it's doing stuff. Right. Um, and so it's very. I mean, it's microserviced out in that that box that you know you're just going to run this one app this one time. Maybe it's a Hadoop thing. Maybe it's a whatever. And then there are probably boxes that are like persistently running things. But the idea is that they can they can operate at that scale and they don't have to care about. They're not caring. Uh, I think so. Uh, Martin Fowler, when he talks about microservices, I'm talking about like component componentization ver- via services. And just kind of like this component, so you're thinking of your software as like the individual pieces of the app and breaking those out into their own apps or microservices. So instead of having an app that does, you know, all of your user management, maybe you just have one that stores like user IDs and maybe another one actually stores like transaction history for the user. Mm-hmm. Um, so just breaking it up so that you, it, I mean, it makes for some really nice failure domains too right. um, in, a, in a high availability world. But yeah, you do have that kind of, I, at least I feel, a threshold of scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of people don't need it or don't want it. Right. So I think on the release side, the thing that I find kind of interesting about uh, microservices is depending on how your, your organization is set up, if you have you know pods or teams working on a cluster of microservices or a set of them, the sort of release management or release engineering of it is going to be kind of interesting. So things like, okay, you know, what, uh, what order do you sort of deploy um, your services in? And EJ mentioned something about how you could have services that sort of broadcast to a dispatcher that says, hey, I'm here, I do, I don't know, I do video encoding, for example, or whatever. So, you know, I think release management becomes likely even more involved and more critical because you get into things like, okay, do you have different tiers of microservices like this topmost tier, things like security, authentication, you know, stuff that's core to your business. Kind of matters if it goes down. Exactly. And then lower tier stuff. I mean, if you look at, for example, something like, like Google, right? When you do a search query, you're probably hitting, I don't know how many hundreds of different web services. Um, one of them maybe being the did you mean the spell checker thing. Yeah. Um, so well, there's th- that statistic about Netflix, right? That loading the, like on, it, it's device dependent, but loading the front page of Netflix on, on any device is something like 80 microservice calls or something like that. Right. So I, I think from a release management standpoint, it, your strategy is going to have to change. Instead of saying, okay, I've got this huge monolithic build that I'm pushing out there, like a two gigabyte, you know, whatever, torrent or, um, that, I'm, that I'm putting out there, now I have to think about, okay, well, you know, scheduling and the order that I put these things in and then the DevOps culture type stuff, I think matters even more because you've got to coordinate between you know, and again, this depends on how your organization is set up, but let's say you do have pods or teams that work on groups of microservices, that sort of DevOpsy culture type stuff is going to be even more important. If you've got teams fighting, you know, with each other, I don't think you're going to get anything done. 
Yeah, so that's all I was saying is a lot of times we talk about different technologies or even, you know, quote unquote, the DevOps. And people are like, if I could just get the utopian DevOps, everything would be fine. And it's one of these things where we talk about it in source control with Git. You know, Git is better for certain things, but it, it's not necessarily cheaper. So from an application, I think a lot of people think, oh, microservices will solve every problem. And that's what I was asking earlier. Yusuf, you were just talking about you need to have some amount of, you know, alignment within the organization to, to make this really work the right way. It, it seems Seems like you get a lot of benefits, but it does isn't necessarily cheaper. Well, it, it, it depends on yeah, and it depends on what you're where where you're actually placing your value in, uh-huh. in your organization, and that's I think that's kind of where. Because we were talking about like the the, comp- the complexity of coordination and release management, there may not actually it may not actually be that complex um, if you kind of have something that's very flat and something that is is designed like to tolerate well, is designed to tolerate the you know, outages of certain nodes yeah. at certain times. So if you if you built something that is like you really lean into that kind of model, then mm-hmm. it's it's I mean you, you, the the difficulty is getting your team around it and getting the tooling everything and everything. But if you really go for like go whole hog into microservices and service discovery and everything, then you can kind of you sidestep a lot of other problems. But you also have to have people who are able to think in this. We're deploying like you know maybe fifty percent of the nodes, or we're doing like ten percent of the nodes as canary nodes, and if they fail, then we turn them off, we revert the build. So it's it's methodologies that may be unfamiliar to people in your organization at the outset. Um, so it's there's definitely that cultural educational component. It can be super, super easy, and I've seen it work at some places where they, like, from the outside, it's like, oh, this is crazy and complex, and it's this beautiful unicorn, and mm-hmm. the tool works. But it's also getting everyone on board with the, the, the crazy train that is, you know, that kind of methodology. <laughs> Seems very decentralized. Yes. Well, that's, I mean, if you're going, if you're going for that, you can, I've seen it work. It's just. I mean, from a technology standpoint and also from a kind of development standpoint. Yeah, totally. So I want to chime in on some of the stuff that Yusuf said. Like, I, I feel like he was on point for some of that stuff. Like, it wasn't too, too long ago I was talking to a friend of the show there, Justin Ryan at Netflix, and he was saying how yeah, there's, like, an API team or, co- or platform team. I forget which one he was talking about at this point. But I'm sure that has to be coordinated. But one of the other things that he talked about was that if you're going to do this for reals, typically your changes are both forward and backward compatible. Um, so there's less scariness. And then on top of that, we were talking about like a hypothetical social media microservice at Netflix where, say, all of a sudden the Twitter feed chewer service dies, right? They use something like Hystrix to circuit break over to something else and display different social media site. So like, there's so many little nuances to the microservices that, much like this, this sort of DevOps culture or religion or whatever we're calling it these days, that people only want to do one fit in, but they got to get all the way into the pool, unfortunately, see all the benefits. And then to sort of like finish that thought, again, like I hate to talk about reInvent again, uh, but last year there was everyone nerdgasming over all the Netflix presentation and everyone's holding up their iPads to take pictures of slides that was nothing more than a GitHub URL. Every single one of the presentations this year, one of the Netflix presentations, there was a talk on microservices and what they did and how they got to where they are. And the presenter, you know, was completely honest about this saying, you know, maybe microservices aren't for you. Maybe you're not there yet. And Monolith is totally fine. You know, it's easier to manage. You know, everything is available in your IDE. There are some pain points there, but, I mean, it's not one size fits all. Yeah, that's uh, that's actually been my favorite comment as of late. And I was at a meetup, and people were talking about, like, Docker and, like, extreme levels of containerization for their services and, you know, a pure, beautiful microservices approach. And the comment that I, I totally like to trot out is, like, you're not Google. You, you know, you're not Netflix. You're not... <laughs> You don't have a team of 30 engineers like just chomping at the bit to do this. Right. Most people don't, right? Right. You don't have a team of not just of 30 engineers, but of like 30 engineers who are thinking in like in a container, in a, in a very like, you know, no state in the container type of like this is a lot of stuff to buy. Yeah. Most, I think pretty much anywhere we're, we're talking about, there's a lot of people running around with scissors and right. you got to slow them down a little bit and get them to a, and sometimes well, I'm the dude running around with scissors. You know, so I, I'm not going to point fingers. Yeah, so let me ask about that. I mean, it sounds because you were talking about, you know, everything in the IDE, it sounds like, uh, you know, it's, it's a real shift because, you know, I was thinking, like, when you have everything in your IDE and you need to debug something, like, you can debug it, but now it's like you're debugging the API, and if it doesn't work, you actually, it's not useful to go and look at, 
you may be able to go look at some microservices code if that's not your team. Hopefully it's not a completely polyglot environment. Right, and like right, but, but, you're working right, but, on a Java service that's consuming output from a node service, which is consuming output from like a EMR right, job but, or something. Right, but isn't that the point? Isn't that the point that, that you oh, should no, be able I'm, to I'm, do that? Yeah, well, you, that that's, what, that's what they want to do, but I'm just saying like to debug that, it gets hairy. Right, and they have to be ready. There are different concerns. Like there are operational concerns versus debugability. Like it's really, it's it can be a pain in the ass to debug something even in like, say you've got Visual Studio and you've got a single stack application. That can be a pain just because you're trying to figure out where in the code stuff is going around. Now if you have a microservice, you've got a very, very small responsibility domain. So you're like, I only do this one thing. Like maybe it's like a Snowflake thing, like Twitter Snowflake, where it's just like, I'm just incrementing Like I'm just, I'm just incrementing a counter. And that makes troubleshooting the individual service easier, potentially. So you can say, oh, the problem is right here, and so you can isolate it quicker. But there, there are different trade-offs in terms of observability, traceability, and operations, like, like keeping something up. So back to the social media example, like to Seth's point, like just imagine if there was just the social media service, and that included pulling stuff from Facebook and Google+, and MySpace, and whatever else. And just imagine, <laughs> that, just imagine that MySpace thing is just crashing all the time, and it takes down the container. It takes down all the services with it. That's a good thing to sort of to split apart. And then you know, like, it's just the MySpace thing that keeps crashing, and nobody cares about that feed anyway. Let's just flip everyone over to the, uh, I don't know, a Twitter thing or right, but show no, you or whatever the new service is. Right, but my point was, it seems to me that if you had the entire app in your IDE and you're able to look, even though it may be another team's module or another team's thing, and, and I'm not saying, like, people shouldn't feel empowered in their positions to look at other teams' code. I'm just saying that it would seem like, from a debugging standpoint, it would be easy to say, like, the interaction of this particular, you know, when my microservice or my app layer calls your microservice, it fails. Can you look at that for me? And that's a good, like, we. I, I can remember in um, object-oriented coding all the time, we, they talk about contract programming, right? And and so the, the culture side apart, which I don't, I don't want to say it isn't important, but I'm saying it seems like it would make the lines of the contract very easy to debug so that you don't have to go looking at different modules in your IDE if it's not even a team that you're on and you're just trying to get something from a particular service. It just makes it clear who's supposed to do what. It, it does, it, yeah. yeah. From both an oper- from an operating perspective and a kind of like service responsibility perspective, when like... That's what I, I, the thing I like about the, the idea is the, these failure domains because it makes them very tight. So it's like right. I put X into this thing and Y comes out, and if Y stops coming out or Z starts coming out, then I know that I need to, you know, do, we can alert and look at that, but I, then I know I need to look just at that one thing. That could be good medical it, advice. Yeah, right, but, right, but there's also the kind of what if happens if there's, like, say, a bad actor somewhere in the system, so not failure, mm. but like something injects something bad into another service, which causes kind of a, you get this kind of like chained failure, which mm-hmm. you can be, so it, it's it's not all kittens and rainbows, but it, it can be it can be more kittens and rainbows than not. Right. One other point to that is like, you know, one of the things we learned and was highlighted in several talks this year too, is that you have to be very careful how you chain these things together, because if you say we have each one of these hosts is a microservice. And we're all talking to the Google Hangout microservice because I've asked for it. You can put a hotspot outside of a standard backend where you'd look for it. So if A talks to B, talks to C, and each one of them is dipping into like the org service to get an org ID back versus the first one, passing it through to each one of them, um, then you can create a hotspot within that service and s- scale it or choke out your system. Um, Doesn't that also apply to, like, I, I, I could see some weird dependency problem. Does this happen where, like, you've got a service that calls another service that calls another service that calls the original service and then it's like, oh, I don't know, let me call that service and then you get like these weird loops. Does that is that a problem? Is, yeah, yeah, I mean if you, if you don't if you don't architect, I mean that's and that's yeah. like, I guess that's the big catch with all of this kind Staff, of Staff, do I ever architect anything? <laughs> I mean <laughs> Bro, do you even architect? I I, I would like to uh, refrain oh. from comment. Um no, I, I no. It's I think that's it's 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 definitely, and that's kind of I think the where we're. You know, I'm I'm mentioning thresholds, but it's also like it's not just size. It's also maturity. It's also competency. Right. If you've got a big, if you've got a big enterprise, say you're at like a big traditional or like traditional like big box enterprise. You yeah, know, people box. are like people are going to be totally happy with like the one Oracle server. 
and like the you know the web app the, you know the java web app and like man they are super happy to be there and they're not going to want to like break things up into microservices so it's but, but so this dependency problem i mean yusuf you asked a few minutes ago about uh, in terms of like releasing it and and does ordering matter and how you do the releases is is that a case of that problem do you think I think it can be. I mean, I think depending on how well uh, your API is defined, how often it changes. Sure. I mean, it, again, it depends on what you're what you're what you're doing. And speaking of dependencies, one other thing that I wanted to mention with microservices is your network topology has to be super duper robust, especially yeah. you know because when you're running in a monolithic application, it's you're you're generally not making any uh, that memory access is pretty quick. Right. right. Exactly. You're not you're not making any network calls. So you, yeah, you've got to rely on a lot of like message queues. You got to you you may you may potentially have to rely on other brittle pieces, which I think is is the scary bit. And, and actually, in uh, the the article I mentioned, Fowler's piece on microservices, he's talking about like yeah, you're you're putting stuff over the network. You're doing RPC, so you got to have like retries and like you know acknowledgements and or have like something like you know one of those MQs you know sitting in there to actually like deliver messages and make sure they're delivered. And so you you potentially introduce additional complexity. Complexity. It's it depends on like and that's the going back to the size thing. At some point, you you need that for distribution and speed and so scale. I, I just, it's all about the size with you, right, Seth? Huh? It's all about yeah. It's it's all about it's all about size. It's all about scale. I, I don't I don't know if I agree with the, the networking thing because I remember like dude early on when we were starting to move there, it really just felt like Amazon was tightening the screws on this imaginary network connection we had with some of our instances and like the network in the cloud is. Yeah, well, that, that's Old the problem. That, that's not a real network. Like, that's, yeah, well, it's just you saying like you have to have a really solid network. Lying about being a network. I don't, I don't, I don't fully believe that. I think what you have to do is what you're talking about, Seth, is just have retries and robustness and resilience built into your code. Don't rely on anything. Right. Write everything in Erlang, kids. Yes, Erlang. <laughs> no JS. No JS. I heard is really stable. <laughs> So Seth, I have a sense of the answer that you're going to give me this, given that you have some experience with the distributedness, the distributed codes. I'm guessing the other uh, takeaway here is don't don't think you're going to write it yourself unless you're like doing PhD level work in distributed systems. Like don't don't like hey I'll I'll just write a service that inserts a message into a MySQL database and then you get it out the other end and it'll just be fine. Right. Well, there, there's, there's, so yeah. There's, I was gonna say, there's, there's a lot of good research out there on like how like these particular problems are hard, and you should really. There are a lot of people trying to reinvent the wheel currently. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't, I won't, I won't, I won't say anyone specifically because I already get enough Twitter arguments. But <laughs> there are, there are people who are trying to like reinvent this wheel without respect for a lot of, a lot of the research that has been done for the past, God knows, like 30, 40 years. You don't say that because that never happens in our industry. Right. I know, but it's, it's one of those like there's, there's. There's a lot of good stuff out there for like the action, the very fundamental problems that we face in computer science. And so there's there's a lot of like there's a whole body of work that you should probably familiarize yourself with before you like. I mean, it's not something you should do lightly. But I also think people should be a lot better informed than they are before they do something. Yeah. Um, also, note so that in other I, words, I've never I've never been in a startup that has like had a huge exit or anything. So maybe, in other maybe words, I'm totally wrong. Don't, don't think you're going to be putting sleep in in your microservice code and have it have it at work. I mean, just rub some sleep on it. Just rub some sleep on it. Rub some calls to sleep. It's fine. Yeah. yeah. No, actually, I think that's good advice. Like, if you think this is easy and you're writing a distributed message bus, you're probably doing it wrong. Well, you're either you're either brilliant or you're terrifyingly like incorrect. It's what right. I do. <laughs> yeah. Um. I. You know, the one thing you were talking about that sort of is coming up in the background uh, when we're talking about all these services talking to each other. It seems to me like speaking of of rubbing sleep calls on it, you'd want to rub some Sember on it. Oh yeah. Like versioning in general, like that whole bike shed now becomes a veritable fleet of bike sheds that we sh- all get to paint. I versioning, would imagine versioning your APIs is a big. I mean, that's a big deal. Yeah, you can't you can't do this without that. <laughs> yeah. So I would imagine that would be a cultural thing, just because develop that's something developers and release engineers. This is not uh, me ranting against developers. Like everybody likes the bike shed. That it seems that that would be something that you would need to kind of get all aligned on to make this work. Otherwise, it's kind of going right. to blow up. Or am I? Yes. No. Yes. Yes. Unless you go far enough in the robustness category to make your application. Say, say if one of the applications in like your cluster isn't of the same capability, everything drops back to the existing capability until all the, all the applications are at the same level, um, you know, the same up, you know, the same version or what mm-hmm. have. You. So there are ways to do it, but again, it, it's 
unless you're like if you're thinking about that, you're just going to build it in as a robustness feature. But, but yeah, it seems that, that would part- add complexity, right? I mean, even this whole idea of like, oh yeah, you know, and, and it's funny, right? There's an analogy, isn't there, to uh, feature flagging? Yeah, yeah. It's like if the, this feature flat, right? Do, do you think microservices makes feature flagging easier? Oh, totally. Like, it totally oh, can. I mean, yeah, call this new version of the service and display the new things. Right. Or, I and, think you have to do that too. Yeah, yeah and, and like the, I mentioned the Canary stuff. Um, so yeah. looking at somebody like Etsy where they like, hey, we're going to roll this out to like 10% of the servers if they don't throw any alerts or if they're not, if they're within like plus or minus 5% of the performance, everything's cool. But not, is they, Etsy microservice based? We don't have anyone from Etsy. Uh, not not uh, Twitter, just, Dear Etsy Twitter people is is because uh, I thought it was a more not entirely monolithic, obviously, but a more traditional app. It's a little more traditional with how they do deploys and stuff, and how they uh-huh. kind of like roll forward through everything. Um, so it's yeah. not it's not necessarily entirely microservices, but in the kind of how they how they deploy stuff out there with feature flags specifically. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So I actually. Like, I wanted to ask a little bit about that, EJ. I know you've talked, you talked, you even mentioned it this episode. You talked a lot about like sort of baking things. Do you starting with the development team? Just get them all baked. And... <laughs> but uh, just to be very clear, only in Colorado and Washington. Only in Col- Yes, thank you, thank you for clarifying. <laughs> right, but I wanted to ask, like, when you bake an AMI, do you put? Is it single microservice yes. per AMI? Yeah. Yep. One oh, okay. Service. Okay. So, so that you don't like mix like ten of them and only maybe turn on one. No, 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 no. I, like well, that. I know that there is that paradigm. Like, there's a considered like a stem cell approach mm-hmm. where it's sort of like a standard generic AMI, and where it comes up based on auto scaling group or user data that's been fed into it, it actually becomes like a liver service or whatever. But for us, is more like it's it's one per. So let me ask this: Is this a stupid model? Could you conceivably do something where you say, "Hey, we have this standard AMI." that we want to deploy because it makes like the auto-scaling bring up and, and some of the management just a little easier. So maybe we deploy, uh, maybe we have 10 microservices. So maybe we don't have a ton, we have like 10. And we deploy all of the microservices on that AMI, but then when we actually bring it up in Amazon, it has a specific role so only one is running. That, that's and what I'm saying. That, that's, that, sort of, that's the stem cell approach. Gotcha, it has okay. nothing on it and retrieves some artifact from like S3 or wherever, or it has everything on it and based on like, you pass in user data that says you are, this particular type of service. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. So I would imagine, I mean, yeah, the, again, the versioning part becomes interesting, but then also like the get, you know, which do you gather up and then bake as a as a particular AMI image to actually go and deploy could have some Wait, interesting possibilities. Before we before we like get off this topic real quick though, like our AMIs are not just a singular service. There's also other services running there to make sure the service that we care about is actually behaving and performing. Mm-hmm. Mm. So there there's the one microservice that's running, but there's also also things checking the health of the container and the app and the logs and whatever the heck and, they and all you, get those. And, yeah and the, do they have endpoints into them that you can query them some some remotely? do some do some don't again some are just there to watch the container and what's going on in that box to make sure that things are what we care about and and terminate otherwise but yeah some some of them are you can contact but yeah Ter- terminate otherwise that's pretty interesting <laughs> yeah, so one of the things we have, and one of my favorite ones is we, it's called like the service health checks. It's some lame name. So uh, this was written in sort of like bleary-eyed, you know, 2 o'clock in the morning. Hey, we should try this out. Hey, it's awesome. But it's affectionately known as the headshot service, where if the uh, container is left up running but the actual service derps out, this thing just terminates that instance and lets the auto-scaling group repopulate it. Mm. So here's an interesting question. When it does that, does it have a microservice or some way to report why it killed yeah, the... Yeah, there's a whole other service that will take out the last 20-something lines of log file, and I think it's taking it from syslog, so you're getting a bunch of details in there, yeah. um, and it ships an SES, a simple email service, go Amazon, um, to a particular mailing list, which is effectively the, the dev team here. Interesting, interesting. But so it sounds like, I mean, especially EJ, something like that, like, you could have a, a security by obfuscurity problem, right, where you, if you've got, like, service endpoints, you have to protect them. Like, how does security play into all of this new microservice world? I think security is kind of a doozy because when you look at it from an attack vector standpoint, and instead of now having just one 
single attack vector, you've got, I don't know, X number of microservices running out there and X number of attack vectors. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, have, I have a slight, uh, uh, you can also see it from a, uh, the complete opposite view of you have yeah. less, less data, so you're, you're just passing simple messages between these microservices. So there's very few, none of them are necessarily authoritative. The, all the keys to the kingdom are not on one, and these these microservices, if they're architected well, they can only talk. You know, one microservice can only talk to this other microservice, and so you actually have better security than if you had a single monolithic service. Where if you got got into the box, yeah, it's a piata at that point. Right, you've got everything. Whereas if this one, you maybe you get the message queue, and that's all you get because that's the only way to get in. So it actually spreads. I wish Pete was here for this, but I feel like it spreads the attack. I mean, it's there are more. There's more surface area, but the surface area is each each little bit of surface area is very tiny because you can't get everything from it. You can only maybe get access to maybe a message queue or maybe you know a, a particular service, and you've pwned that one box. But if you've got something like EJ's mentioning, where you've got these kind of auto scaling groups and everything, you just kill that box, bring up a new one, and it's got different certs, different keys. I guess it's this is contingent though. on it being architected well. That's that's the, the kind of huge... I think, I think the other point, too, is like a lot of these communication channels, they're not open to the general public. At least they're not in our in my world. So it's not like you can even really tap into these things. Well, yeah, but it's, it's interesting, right? This reminds me of the infinite diversity and infinite combinations sort of Vulcan thing, right? And if... It, it's not... Well, here's the thing. It, it, when you have a monolithic app, it's not that... I mean, there's there's lots of really, really expensive tools that try to do code tracing and make sure that all the paths are, t- are taken and, and stuff like that. And that's... You know, you want to talk about... To, to Seth's point, you want to talk about PhD-level computer science research. Quick check, uh, you know? Shout out to Quick Check. Oh, yeah. But okay. so I was just making a Star Trek reference, but you, if you've got all these microservices, you know, infinite combinations, uh, there's certainly some complexity and weirdness there. That, and that's where you see a lot of the weird security hacks. It's like some low-level service. Some, I mean, it's the war games. It's the modem that's connected to the Whopper in the back, right? It's the, the microservice endpoint that just dumps the log file to email, but then, you know, maybe there's a Procma rule that executes bash and bash bug. You know, who knows? That's the whole point. Right, but the idea is you'd only get the bash bug on that one tiny microservice which doesn't have to, enough for you to do any damage. You hope. Well, that's uh, that, I, I left my caveat in there of, like... <laughs> oh, I mean, ho- hopefully you're not doing anything dumb, like... Yeah, if you're... If you're doing something dumb, nobody can do it. It's like, like foo.com slash API slash shell, and it just yeah. runs a shell command on the machine. That's yeah, exactly. There's yeah. your microservices right there. <laughs> but, yeah. but, if you, but if you have this all in one box, if you, if you get rooted on that one box, you are royally screwed as opposed to being maybe just a little bit screwed. Um, yeah. So I think... Screwed. Slightly screwed. So I think it can make it easier. Now, locking it down, as Yusuf mentioned, that doing that correctly right. can be, you know, I, I think this this model encourages that mode of thought, but if it doesn't like necessarily... PhD level computer re- computer science research, computer yeah, security I mean, research. It, well, like, if you're given, you're giving these, you're like, hey, let's go do this crazy thing, but if you don't understand what you're doing with it, then, like, I mean, shoot. Good like, luck. Yeah, exactly. Good luck. Have fun. Yeah. So last question I want to ask. We, we talked about uh, sort of the monolithic world and then the microservices were like, how would you get started? You know, in the models that you've seen, probably especially uh, for a lot of us on the release end, how do, if, if you are re-architecting a large application, on the deployment side, like, how do you see the, the thing starting to fall out from a deployment side? Then we can sort of infer backwards. I mean, it's really, for me, it's just, it's the old, just do one one thing, you know, one small piece at a time. Yeah. So start, slowly start breaking up your, your monolithic service. And, and, and then make the monolith call out to the small thing to get the whatever. Right, yeah. call out to the small thing, and then you make another, then you break off another chunk. And I've seen, I've seen organizations do this plenty of times where it's just let's de- it's just decoupling the monolith. It's not like you're rewriting a lot of the code. You're just changing how it communicates, you uh, know. Sometimes sometimes that's wicked difficult to yes. do because you have like a library and you have oodles of utils and it's like some of these belong in this thing and then you want to break out the shared library so this and then the weird monolithic build that produces this library now either ha- either has to produce a library or you have to break out a secondary thing that is producing the library and now you have three modules all of a sudden you only meant to have one yeah it, I, look I worked I worked for Sally May and like 
2008, 2006, 2008, somewhere in that time frame, we started, we did that. We had a giant monolithic thing where it's like this one build process produced a couple of wars, and we're actually using ATG, so it was like ATG's flavor of ear files. And so you don't want to even know what kind of hell that was. And it, it took us about three years to go from that steaming pile to like fully, well, I'd say mostly you know, fully-fledged microservices. Three years. So depending on, like, where you're at, it may take an extended period of time. If you're working on, a, like, a 10-year-old code base and want to go microservices, you're probably going to go through some all sorts of, like, tech uh, archaeology as you go through all the different layers of garbage. Yeah. So, and it certainly sounds like, too, that something you have to account for is the release pipeline side. Right, that there is going to be, like if you're deploying more types of AMIs, let's say, right, and you currently have one deployment process that, that dumps one WAR file or a set of WAR files somewhere and then, then you just go, there, you're going to have to do some investment on the release engineering side, it sounds like, and that's something you're, you're going to have to think about. You can't just kind of spring it on, on the team that's helping with that. Yeah, like, it's always been, I think everyone that's hosting tonight has been sort of on the end of that stick over their career, <laughs> where it's just like, yeah. hey, we're doing this thing, guys, now automate it. And you're like, this is, I don't know, start over, please. And It's a different stack, it's a different everything, I hate yeah, you. You really, yeah, I've, built, I've been five years of tooling to do Java, and you want me to do Erlang? No. No, I don't know what I'm no, doing. Yeah. Erlang. But yeah, yeah so it's like I feel like I feel like you have to get involved if you're if you're in ops or release engineering or any one of these sort of you know you you usually get the the closing window effectively of the timeline of you know code release if you're in one of those you've got to just like shove your head in there you've got to get involved yeah 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 so from if if we have developers listening please ask your friendly release engineer or deployment engineer or ops engineer how if you're thinking of going into the microservice world how they can help you so that you don't have this not nice microservice app and you can't deploy it and then people are sad. Works on the um, machine. Yeah, exactly. It works on my HTTP endpoints uh, on localhost. Yeah, ops problem. Uh, yeah. Well, I'd love to open this discussion up to our listeners. You should email us, crew at theshipshow.com, or uh, on Twitter, continue the discussion, Ship Show Podcast. Developers, let us know where we got the microservice details wrong. Ops people and release engineers, how, uh, QA people, how have you, how do you test this stuff? How do you Oh, God, yeah, QA, let's talk. Yeah, we kind of people. avoided that one. Uh, but yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a whole, we could do a whole episode about that. Yeah. Test in production. Yeah. Problem solved. There you go. And we'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to the Ship Show. So for our last segment tonight, we're going to do something kind of weird and interesting. Uh, and if you like it, you can blame Yusuf. And if you don't like it, you can also blame Yusuf. Um, he actually noticed that we have a poet among us. <laughs> Sorry. Know it. And so we thought we would do something fun and weird for this episode. And so, Seth, apparently you do tech haikus. So, so uh... No, well, I mean, I don't, I don't willingly do it. I don't like make it my daily business to do tech haikus, but occasionally I've written. A haiku. Do you have a startup? Uh, haiku. Not, not haiku. Yet. Io. Haiku. Haikus is a service. Um, <laughs> well, Microservice. Was, so, so I think I think uh, Yusuf noticed it just because I'm so given given that I was a Japanese language literature and film major, I, I actually like studied haiku as a mm -hmm. form. And so, like people are like, oh, I'm just gonna write the you know like the five seven five, and then I'm done. And like that, like kind of leaves out some of the beauty of haiku, which includes a lot of details that I won't get into. So I have occasionally written them to express, I don't know, support, distaste, whatever, for a variety of services or things like that. Well, so so wrote, you have a you have a haiku for us. So I wrote one. Uh, I, I I was I was totally talking about it earlier. Yeah. So I wrote this one for uh, Yusuf had asked me, and I was like, ah, well, it's reinvent time. So uh, hopefully, hopefully I got this right. Because if I get the syllables wrong, then I'm gonna feel dumb. But so this is this is in reference to we will uh, all laugh at you, but empathetically. That's cool. So this is in reference to you know kind of like people people getting you know people's business models being kind of completely invalidated by Amazon you know at at reInvent. Hustle to prepare. AWS eating lunches. Autumn in Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. It's good. I like it. Oh. Yes. I feel like I could get I should get this on like a on like a like some some kind of tapestry in my home. Um, <laughs> 
I was going to write a few more, but that was the only one. Like, I was like, figured reinvent the eclipsing everything. I figured that was the uh, that was the most appropriate one for the day. Well, so this is what we are going to do. We are actually going to do a ship show podcast haiku contest, if you can believe it. So what we want are you if you can fit your haikus into a tweet. Go ahead and do that. If you can't, crew at theshipshow.com, send us your haiku. The deadline will be the end of uh, November, last day of November, 30th at 11.59 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, send us those haikus and uh, tweet at us if you want to send us a haiku. And uh, we will send a prize to the uh, top winning haiku, but the prize is a secret. So think of those over the Thanksgiving break. I want to know what the prize is. The prize is going to probably be if the they like... The prize is Seth's cat's vomit or something? It'll, it'll, it'll be like a gift certificate to, to AWS. Oh my god. Gift Super <laughs> troll. The, the, yeah. The stupid gift bag we got from Amazon was a $100 gift certificate for AWS. And I'm not talking Amazon.com. I'm talking like AWS. You know that Amazon.com would have been nice. What the f***? Like, yeah, I'm going to buy an EC2 instance for a weekend or something. That's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Time, Timeshare. Timeshare your timeshare, kids. Yeah. We're all yeah. going to pitch in and get a big there RDS instance. <laughs> so last up, as we always do, the little conference moment. So uh, a lot of you are probably thinking there are no more conferences at all this year, but you would be wrong. Uh, DevOps Days Tel Aviv is coming up the 23rd and 24th. That's next week. And then, but, and it looks like uh, Tel Aviv is the last DevOps Days of the year. Also wanted to mention a uh, friend of the podcast, uh, Stephen Morosky uh, and uh, Dominica DeGrandis, and I will be doing a two-day combined one-day DSC, Desired State Configuration Foo, and one-day Kanban training in December in L.A., we will link to the show notes. I will be helping with that training, and it will be super awesome, fun stuff. We'll be doing uh, the Kanban for DevOps training, which is actually a lot of fun if you've never gone through it. That's December 9th and 10th in LA. And then, of course, uh, next year, we've conferences are already starting to roll in. We've got the Lean UX conference in April. You might wonder, why do I care about Lean UX? Well, it turns out they have an entire DevOps track. They've got an Agile track. Uh, Esther Derby, who has been on the show before. Jessica DeVita is going to be there. Kevin Bear is going to be there on the DevOps track. Jeff Susna. So a lot of big DevOps names there. And then also uh, ChefConf 2015, March 31st through April 2nd uh, in Santa Clara. So uh, yeah, excitement abounds there. So from San Francisco, this is Paul Reed signing off. From San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off. From Drake at Mass, this is EJ signing off. From Seattle, Washington. Signing off. Have a good Thanksgiving or whatever holiday you celebrate involving putting food in your face, and we will see you all in a couple of weeks. Bye.